You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 497, simulation theory and unconventional rock movies, commissioning strange TV shows and being woke with Winston Marshall. That's all coming up after the Beatles and Baby, You're a Rich Man. I was listening to a playlist of Beatles B-sides this week, and it's mm. quite amazing the number of songs that they tucked away on B-sides. Oh, absolutely. I agree. That, yeah, other bands would have ached to have had as an A-side. I mean, Things We Said Today, She's a Woman, I'm Down, mm. I'm the Walrus, uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a greatest of hits in itself, isn't it, isn't really? It that's just, immense. Yeah, Don't Let Me Down. And this one from 1967. Mm. B-side of All You Need Is Love, The Beatles and Baby You're a Rich Man. Yeah, I mean, like you say, when you put it like that, I mean, obviously, this sounds obvious, but I know the Beatles are good, right? I know, I know that they're good at what they do, but when you when you set it out like that and you say they're all B-sides, it, I know that they're all B-sides, yet that is still head scrambling when you reel them off from kind of start to finish. It's just wonderful. And in a, in the style of Imagine, it's another one that makes me smile because it's another example of John Lennon writing a song about how material wealth isn't important this time mm. from his enormous house on St. George's <laughs> Hill in Weybridge. 
Yes, quite. Yes. Um, hello, thanks for joining us for the for the latest from the Parish Council. Mm. It's episode 497. I'm Terence Stackham. And, well, let's just hope we get no Piers Morgan-style flouncing off. <laughs> it's Julia Harris. I mean, I'm tempted to go now, just as a sort of... A, or, or maybe it's a shame we don't have a weather presenter on the Parish Council that could have shouted from the <laughs> yeah. other side of, uh, of, of our mics. That would have been particularly authentic. By the way, I like the you explaining... The this is the latest from the parish council. It makes me think of those CNN hysterical type bulletins with Breaking this just this just in and a fist punching the screen. I mean, I'm I'm in pajamas. I'm not particularly cut out for that. But anyway, hello everyone. The thing is, were you silent or were you silenced? That's what we want to know. Mm. Do you know Piers Morgan? Um, just very quickly. And I don't know Piers Morgan, and I'm not sorry about that. But carry on. Well, this is the thing because never has there been a greater contrast from mm. a chap who is a kind person in private to the yes. bombastic public yeah, persona. It's so weird. It, I, I don't know a couple what of times is going at cricket. on. Met him a couple of times at cricket, which mm. means I spent a long time with him. I was in the same area with him yes. for the whole of a cricket. Honestly, you know, I can't bear him on, on TV. <laughs> yeah. But he was lovely. He was mm. kind, gentle, quiet, chatty, no airs and graces. Mm. And I've heard um, from a couple of um, journal journalist friends of mm. mine, uh, both of them women as it happens, who um, lost their jobs uh, through. Mm. Uh, and he did everything he could privately and quietly mm. to help them um, get, it's, get it's so strange. another it's, job. And yet in yeah. public. Dreadful, you know, awful. And, and, and this and this is what is so strange that that occasionally you get glimpses of the fantastic campaigning journalist that Piers Morgan yes. once was and occasionally still is. He was really holding the government to account over Corona in the first few months. And of course, you know, when he was at the Mirror, he was a fantastic campaigning journalist. But there always seems to have been this side of Piers Morgan that he can't keep under control, and it always seems that that kind of blurts out. I mean, the the terrible thing. Over over the Iraq photos, mm. the awful insider de- trading thing, which is what did yeah. for him at the Mirror, and then you know the 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 the, the you know sickening toadying to Trump. Um, yes. He seemed he just seems to have this. Yeah, it just seems to have these terrible lapses of judgment, like you say, that that seem to belie private reports that I've heard of him as a person. He just he just seems it just behaves so appallingly in public. I just don't I don't get it. I don't get what having a uh, what having a person. I can understand what's in it for you if you have a persona that is very nice in public and you're obnoxious in private. I completely understand that way round. I don't get what you gain from the other way round, really, in the long term. I suspect it won't be long before he's bellowing at politicians again, perhaps mm. with Andrew Neil's GB. Well, News and, as and this seems this seems idiot. to be the this seems to be the insider talk that he'd yes. already got something elsewhere. And so it's almost Dominic Cummings leaving number ten carrying the cardboard box in front of the cameras, isn't it? Really, it's some it's some expected. grand gesture uh, when there is another plan. I don't know. Now, as well as being on the other side to All You Need Is Love, Baby, You're a Rich mm. Man is also on the soundtrack of the Magical Mystery Tour movie. Mm. And as a 12-year-old, I sat on the sofa on Boxing Day, mm. full of expectations, 1967, <laughs> when Magical Mystery <laughs> Tour know what made, you're gonna say. <laughs> made its debut on BBC One in black and white. It was 
generally seen at the time, including by me, as you predicting as something of a disaster. It was just it's a, a bit of a complete mess, isn't it, really? Oh, it's, I think it's, even it's, now it's mm. it's only watchable as a sort of historical artifact. Yes, it's not, it, it doesn't have a lot of nutritional value. And actually, when you when you read the stories behind it, where they said that there were tales of them hiring a coach, shoveling all the extras onto it, driving into the fields somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and then just expecting something to happen, that very much comes across in the film, it, I it think. It really does. But it did set up a genre mm. of unconventional conventional rock or pop mm. music uh, movies and this week Jules we watched a much more recent avant-garde rock movie I mean I I I, I just I'm, I feel I need to apologize for you for making us watch this because this film is so nuts that I cannot actually tell you if it is good or not I genuinely have no idea whether or what, what we just watched as someone as the phrase goes it's called simulation theory and it is by a band called muse now i have very long history with muse in that i was i'm trying to hold i was when showbiz i was about 15 i think i was just about to do secondary school when showbiz came out and a friend of mine that sat behind me in in gcse french possibly caused my back pain in later life i think by constantly prodding the small of my back in the bucket chair with her foot to ask me if i had seen muse on i don't know the priory that successor to cfi friday we were big fans we bought all the singles and the the album from the beginning so I, I stuck with Muse and they started off as this kind of well their big talking point references were early Radiohead and Jeff Buckley so they were mm. occasionally loud but they were a sort of a fairly conventional-ish rock band and then the next album came out and that was you know quite blastingly loud Origin of Symmetry I think it was called and gradually over time they I can't explain it in any other words they just started to get more nuts I mean that is the only way I can describe <laughs> Muse's trajectory it became more and more overblown more and more ridiculous um, I think Knights of Cydonia was the last point at which I, I invested in Muse and then after that it just became I mean they did a big bombastic album for the uh, anthem for the Olympics and you know there were all these uh, they did an album called Drones they were dripping in conspiracy theories and I just I just found them they just seemed to lose the plot is all I can describe them as which brings us to Simulation Theory which <laughs> was their eighth studio album released in November 2018 and so they decided they'd do a, a film and this is so bizarre. Um, it's I, I will explain it and then perhaps you can give me your verdict on it. Mm. Because if you haven't seen this, it's one of those things. It's, it's trying to explain this to someone that wasn't there. It's a bit like, you know, many years if you've spent in a political party trying to explain to normal people how it all works. Um, so they made this concert film to support the album called Simulation Theory, um, except it's not just a standard film where, you know, you watch the band play, although you do see quite a lot of the band playing. There's a narrative of scenes that connects this up. Um, the, there's a plot. Um, I'll, I'll read the, our, our lovely and at this point long-suffering listeners uh, the, the opening bit from Wiki. A group of scientists is sent to investigate a mysterious source producing unknown paranormal activity, which leads into a concert stage located in London with an arcade cabinet on it. One of the scientists, called Murphy, touches the cabinet, causing him to break the fabric of his reality and is transported into another one, where he finds himself in the crowd of a live muse concert. And uh, it, there's then a lot about 
pathogens, a mainframe, and bizarrely, a virus that starts to spread. Now, this was made um, in 2019. It was meant to be released in cinemas last year, and in the end was a one-night-only IMAX release in uh, August 2020. Um I don't know how Muse managed to predict the future, and I also don't know how they managed to get this completely loony film made. What the heck, Terence? Well, the, the the thing about the virus is quite bizarre because there's this voiceover that says there mm. is no virus and there's nothing to fear. Mm. And as you say, it was made uh, several six months plus before we'd even heard yes. of uh, COVID. Yes, which no, is it was, crazy. This was interesting to watch and, and a noble effort, I think, to bring something different mm. to your standard in concert rock movie. Um there's a perennial problem for all rock bands on mm. stage. And that is even with all the visuals in the world, you're still a bunch of people with guitars and drums yes. with all the built in issues that that brings. I mean, the mm. drummer can't move at all. The others are in a, in a sense yes. tethered to mics or microphones. Muse mm. tried very hard to overcome this. Um, on, on top of this, they have a fantastic sound for a, a three-piece with a, a supplementary player called yes. Neil Nichols. I mean, they, they, they fill they fill the stage. They, they really do. They, they, they do. They fill the, the the arena as well. Very anth- anthemic songs. Mm. I watched this on a big screen and with surround oh, yes, sound. I, I suspect good, yeah. it would have felt less intensive on a small screen like mm. a, a laptop or something. I regret with, not seeing this at the cinema actually I think mm, it probably makes more sense have, there I think worked, would have worked there with regard to the concert footage I mean I've learned um through talking with you really through experience not to criticize based on the TV experience because mm. it would have been a massively more immersive event yes I think so on TV you know we've discussed that before in relation to mm. Radiohead at Glastonbury for example which you know people who were there said well this is absolutely you know it's sensational and and when you watch it on the TV, something gets lost in the yes. sort of dimension of it. But um, so I, I didn't hate it. It was okay. I think <laughs> to really enjoy it, I think you've probably got to be a Muse fan. Yes, I don't think it's going to convert so. anybody. But, you know, it wasn't. I think all the effort that had been put in to link the con- in-concert footage mm. into that narrative that you you summarised was, was, as I say, a very clever idea. Mm. I'm not sure if unconventional movies about music imp- Im- improve with age. Um, I was thinking about the Monkeys film, Head. That's mm. still nonsensical. Yellow Submarine is tedious. Um, another one, um, but more watchable, uh, I think, is In Bed with Madonna from 1990. Mm, yes, that is that is interesting. Yeah, I- behind the scenes of the Blonde Ambition tour. It is peculiar and eccentric, but, but Madonna's mesmerising throughout. Mm. So, yeah. Also, actually, I think my favourite. So, so yeah, like you. I mean, I, I always have a soft spot for Muse. So, no matter how ridiculous they get, it was nice to hear their earlier things. One thing that I noticed from reading the the wiki entry, because I thought I'd read up after watching it, was that some that that there was um there is a the soundtrack focuses that you can buy the soundtrack as well. Um, the soundtrack primarily focuses on songs from the Simulation Theory album, but contains multiple other songs from Muse albums. The some songs were shortened and reordered from how they were played live for the film, and multiple songs were omitted. So when you look at the songs they left off the soundtrack album, Plug In Baby, Hysteria, Time Is Running Out, 
and Knights of Sidonia, amongst other things, aka the massive singles that most people know. So, so I find the logic to that a bit strange. But um, I thought I have to say I thought some of the acting was a bit ropey in the uh, in the in the kind of the, the the story. I get they were trying to be ambitious. I mean, Matt Bellamy has been quoted as saying they were trying to do the wall by Pink Floyd. So I get. I get what they're, and you know, I admire Muse's ambition in a way. There's still no other band like them, I think, for all that they might not be cool, for all that they are a bit OTT nowadays. There isn't anyone like them. Weirdly, my favourite unconventional movie, which probably people don't think of as being unconventional because of the band, but was, I think, quite a bit out of left field at the time, ABBA the movie. Mm, okay. Which yes, is, which I saw is that a, at the cinema. Yeah. Ah, I see. At you, the time, you, yeah. yeah, exactly. I, I, where you lead, I follow, Terence. Mm. Um, it's, it's, because uh, it's got this kind of storyline around a, a journalist that is a d- naive DJ that's trying to get a in-depth interview with ABBA that's kind of you know it's woven in and out. I quite enjoyed that as a kind of a slightly, slightly unconventional. You know, like you said, there's only mul- there are not many multiples of ways that you can dress up concert footage. So, so I think that anybody that has a bang in it is to be commended i mean magical mystery tour as you say well i mean that is perhaps more of a mess than simulation theory at least i I get the impression that simulation theory is trying to have a plot and a narrative and it's a bit of a shame given that we've spoken previously about how much we love a hard day's night and how great that Mm. is and uh, and how good all their other films are really but um you know it's if you've got time to spare it is so ridiculous, this simulation theory, that it's actually, like you say, yeah, you probably have to be a massive Muse fan to truly enjoy it. But it is quite an enjoyable spectacle, spectacle and they have, they have at least tried to do something different, however slightly mad that might be. If you want to watch the Muse uh, movie Simulation Theory, you can watch it in, in the UK at least for free on mm. the BBC iPlayer. But Jules, did you know this? You can mm. actually buy um, a box set of it from oh, their website. You? How now, much is the box set? Exactly. It's got a oh, Blu-ray. I've, I've got a, I'm, I'm, I'm gripping the desk already. You need to grip I'm that concerned. desk. Blu-ray version, face mm-hmm. mask, various memorabilia. <laughs> you get a face mask, wow. You get a face mask <laughs> with it, indeed. And um, a tour jacket. Four hundred pounds. Oh my God! Although if you get a tour jacket, that's quite—I suppose there is some quality ephemeria in there, but still, mm-hmm. that's quite a lot, isn't it? It's quite a lot. <laughs> Coming right up, the process by which the strangest shows reach our TV. That's right after Leanne Le Havas. Here goes. <laughs> Before I put on my makeup, I say a little prayer for you. While combing my hair now, and wondering what dress to wear now, I say a little prayer for you. Forever and ever, you stay in my heart, and I will love you forever. And ever, we never will part Oh, how I love you Together, together Is how it must be To live without you Would only mean heartbreak for me I run for the bus, dear And while I'm riding, I think of 
chose this because I think like lots of people as we live through this strange time it's really hard to look forward so and the the present is quite draining I think is probably the best way of putting it so it's quite easy to look back on things albeit with some poignancy but I was thinking the other day well I found out that the next gig I'm meant to be going to well one of them has been rescheduled to next April so I think there is a for the third time so I sense there's a fair chance I might well get to see golf rap next april i'm hoping that that's going to happen we're still the jury's still out on l7 in july but i think that, that i should hopefully get to see golf rap next year and at the Delaware Pavilion in Bexhill and regular listeners or long-term listeners will know that I often go and see bands or have often gone to see bands there and we've talked about them on the podcast and I think we might have discussed at the time I went to see Leanne Havis probably well Prince was still alive so so this was you know some years ago now it doesn't feel like it but it probably was and um and she I went with a friend of mine and we both I hadn't heard much of her stuff but I really liked it and this friend of mine was really keen and had both her albums so we, we agreed that we'd go and is still one of the best gigs I've ever been to. I just, wow. I, I, it, she was just phenomenal. She was, and strangely, this is, this goes to show sort of how they just, her support act was lovely as well, a lovely man. They both seemed quite young people, sort of in their mid to mid twenties, I would say, early to mid twenties. And they were just both lovely people. And the support chap who just played a piano by himself and was, 
really lovely was called Tokyo Myers and he went on to win Britain's Got Talent a year or two later oh, on okay. so uh, and to the point where I didn't watch it and my friend I'd been to the gig texted me and went Tokyo's on TV because we were very fond of Tokyo and we wished him well but um but Leanne Hammonds was just she was just glorious she, the way that she sang the songs she was just wonderful and the high point of the gig to, for me well I say that it was before Prince had died because she had of course done some work with Prince and he had he'd stayed at her house I think when he came over to do some press and some gigs over here so they were quite she was he was sort of a mentor to her and she said to us that she had a very special surprise later on in the show and there were a number of us that wondered if it might be Prince unfortunately it wasn't but on the plus side it was the uh, school choir from where oh. she was taught how to and and her music teacher so all these these girls that were sort of you know early teenagers came on and their music teacher who was the teacher that taught Leanna Havis how to sing and Leanna Havis goes and stands in the middle of them and sings and they sang somewhere over the rainbow of course everybody wept there just wasn't mm. a dry in the house but the other plus the other sort of high point was when she did this her version of I say a little prayer and the whole crowd joined in on the believe me backing vocals and it was just I, without sounding like that idiot with the ponytail from pop stars there was a lot of love in that room and and it was you know it was marvelous and I wish her so well she's such a talented performer she had a, an album out a year I think ago where she did a, a lovely version of Weird Fishes by Radiohead which was a brave choice and I just that that version of that song just reminded me of that wonderful night and just how glorious it was it was April but it was you know everyone was sweating like wildebeest in there it was mental how hot it was and and it was, you know, it just made me think back to happier times and hope that we'd have them again. So that's the, the wonderful Leanne Lahavis doing her version of I Save a Little Prayer live at the Roundhouse. It's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, I, I, mm. I, I'd love to uh, I'd love to see her play live myself. Yeah, I hope I great. do one day. Yeah. Um, we'll both go. We'll, we'll have a, we never have office parties for the Parish Council <laughs> podcast. So maybe we'll have our Christmas do to go and see Leanne Lahavis. <laughs> um, the, the process of. Uh, pitching a show for television it's a strange one mm. and looking at a couple of the major successes on tv at the moment it's hard to understand how a commissioner <laughs> of programs would have picked up you know an idea that is essentially installing a camera or two in people's sitting rooms mm. and watching them watch other television shows it's strange Yet, isn't it Robert yeah it's Box compelling has been a huge yeah. success for mm. channel four and equally developing an idea where celebrities dress up as hot dogs or hedgehogs mm. and sing anonymously well it sounds a bit feeble but it's been a massive hit in the UK in the last 18 months that's the masked singer so it mm. seems Jules that when it comes to what we want to watch on the TV we didn't know we wanted it until it was there it's really strange isn't it I mean the success of the masked singer the thing is I know a lot of people that really enjoy watching the masked singer they're all united by one fact which is they all think it is entirely awful i mean all of them go oh this show is rubbish and they watch it every they watch it every single week without fail because there is just something very compelling to see you know who that singing hot dog is i don't know why it works and yet somehow it does and isn't it strange that that there are certain i mean it's like hit records i think there's a similarity with hit records here which is i think executives producers everybody thinks they know what the formula is for a hit and what the formula is for something to be really popular. And the general public are just so random that things that you think would be an absolute surefire success 
die on their rear end and stuff that that you know you think god that is awful who want to watch that you know pooling all of a sudden everyone's you know everyone's obsessed with it i think that the the covid era that we find ourselves in is interesting in that it has forced people to work and do things in a different way and i was discussing this with a friend of mine last summer it was quite early on in the lockdown i think it must have been may i think and and i said god you know as if there wasn't a new low celebrity snoop dogs on channel four which was like through the keyhole except I say presented basically they put a, a camera on a dog's collar and then sent the dog around the house and you had to guess from the dog's journey around the house <laughs> whose house it was and I kind of said oh god isn't this just a load of old pony and my friend said how on earth did that get made nicer well I suppose it's covid secure filming isn't it if you're just sending it and she went oh my god that is genius so so on that's in that sense you think well actually I admire their innovation for having invented this this crazy idea that 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 is very adaptable in it's sort of not quite as well but in the same way that all of the alan bennett monologues that were filmed for bbc for bbc are mildly distracted by the fact they're all in the they were all set filmed on the set of eastenders because there was no other sets open at that point at the bbc so to see leslie manfield sat in doc cotton's kitchen was occasionally quite distracting but anyway so so i suppose that's a kind of a sign of the times but I guess that every every TV pitch looks weird when you write it down, I guess. I guess, you know, if you if you strip everything down to its bare facts, um, people that live in the same street, people that live on the same square, a man that is a thousand years old that regenerates into somebody else every three or four years and travels around the world in a phone box that goes back in time. You know, everything mm. that is in some of our biggest TV institutions People, you know, one of the biggest commercial hits, so the, you know, if you want to go through the BBC's big commercial hits, people driving around and occasionally behaving like nanas in cars, that's been a huge commercial success for them, as has people that work in an office with a slightly annoying boss. I mean, that's that's been one of their biggest kind of, you know, all sitcoms, if you boil them down, are based on really, you know, really sometimes quite dull things. It's but yeah, it's it's the writing and it's it's the kind of the way the program is made that appeals to people. So if you write everything down, I mean, admittedly, the, the mass singer when written down looks stranger than anything else does, probably. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I agree that that is perhaps the, the oddest looking thing if you're going to look at it. But it's it's really it's really strange. It was originally a Korean program. Mm. But um, it's it's I suppose in a way it's, you know, there are some things that look strange on paper and yet they work in practice but i mean to flash back to last week's podcast you and i had no expectations at all for gordon ramsay's bank balance and yet weirdly we found ourselves i wouldn't perhaps go for as far as enjoying it but we found ourselves drawn in that's a good way of putting it so so it's tim harcourt creative director of independent production company studio lambert describes what might be lambert i don't know i was preaching as like treading water and trying not to drown well isn't that 2020 2021 in a nutshell anyway he's identified the slow no phenomenon when commissioners ask for a two-page follow-up that disappears into ether forever is this something you've encountered in your life sir terence well, I, I mean, I've been very lucky um, in that much or most of the work that I've done on TV or film, it's where I've been invited to do it. And so I haven't had to pitch. But I, I about 20 years ago, 
I've had a rather, I mean, especially alarming experience, mm. really, pitching mm. a, a sort of comedy drama show to the BBC at the old television centre. Yeah. Um, it was about the turn of the century, around 2000. And um, the entertainment division was still very much by run by like old white men in, in tweed jackets mm. with, with young women assistants who yes. carried clipboards. And many of these old school men, at least the ones I came across, were absolutely bonkers. Um I don't know if it's still like that now. I wouldn't be surprised if it is. Anyway, my agent at the time, Rachel, and I, we mm. had a meeting with a senior producer at Television Centre, and he came to meet us in reception. Mm. And we headed into uh, we headed into the lift, and as we did so, mm. um, he kept muttering to himself. He kept saying, Terence Red, Rachel Blue, Terence Red, Rachel Blue. And How weird. Rachel and I glanced at each other, and we, we didn't quite know what this was all about. Mm. And then we went into his tiny office in Television Centre where we met his junior colleague, who I remember her name was Sarah. Mm. And this chap, Peter, the producer, had a large pad of yellow paper and this wide range of pens. And we soon learned about the Terence Red, Rachel Blue thing, because then he added, he sort of then added Peter Green, Sarah Black to his mantra. And what he was doing was allocating pen colours to us. And right. so he asked me to give an outline of the show that we were there to discuss. And he grabbed his red pen, writing down what I said. And then if he had a question... He grabbed the green pen. And then if Rachel chipped in with something, he dropped the green pen and started scribbling in blue. And it was right. incredibly off-putting watching yes, him and distracting <laughs> grabbing pens yes. and filling his pages all his multicolored biroing. Um, really eccentric fellow. No real surprise that we didn't hear from this Peter ever again. And my <laughs> glorious proposed show was uh, denied to the nation. And I, I I'm want... devastated about that, Terence, because mm. I bet it would have been good. It was so weird um, sitting in this tiny little room with a tiny little window and this fellow sort of muttering Terence Red, Rachel Blue, Peter Green, Sarah Black, and then grabbing the appropriate bed. I wonder if these producers you know, still haunt the commissioning offices, uh, particularly at, at, at the BBC. I, I, I rather suspect they do. Um, it, it, mm. it was a very bizarre experience. That, that is that is one of the most peculiar things I've ever heard. Although, mate, if I was in that chap's life, I would have bought him one of those pens for christmas that you know i've got four colors in one those big pens that would have made his life a lot easier wouldn't it funnily enough that's exactly what myself and my agent said <laughs> as we were coming out to, you know why didn't he have one of those pens we had at school where you kind of could click different colors or why didn't he just write our names down and said you know sarah said this peter said this instead it's of having to this. grab all these pens that but is clearly something that he'd been doing for you know probably 40 years Mm. uh you know yes that is that is a very odd thing and of course all of this is i I suppose everyone listening at home is probably making this joke to themselves all of us just makes this us think of the i'm alan partridge sketch in which partridge is trying to interest the bbc commissioner in ideas over lunch and eventually pitches monkey tennis also a youth hosteling with chris eubank which actually i think was made i think a couple of of years ago by sort of in jokey tv executives it's uh, one thing that this is interesting uh, a, a commissioning editor person adrian padmore channel 5's factual entertainment commissioning editor no less says that he normally makes a decision within the first line of a pitch if you can pitch in one line you've probably got a very very good idea because the best ideas are simple and I yeah. think that's very yeah. interesting. He, um, he, but it doesn't mean that producers don't try hard to stand out. I didn't know. Apparently, two people famously dance the uh, Argentine tango in front of BBC commissioners during the pitch for Strictly Come Dancing. 
I mean, that is quite a good way of pitching your show. And in the pictures for the masked singer, someone will play a song by a male singer with a feminine voice. When the identity of the singer is revealed, every single person is 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 a surprise. He says he have had he's, this chap has had pictures with people where they've acted it out with Lego figures. I think that's quite cool. That would get me interested. I think, but it's uh, it's the most uh, the most um, outlandish story is um, that they were talking um uh, this bloke called Danny Fenton who's the CEO of Zigzag Productions um it's big hits including Dawn Porter goes lesbian and Danny dies deadliest men big hits i'm sure you agree anyway 10 years ago he pitched a hidden camera prank format to an american buyer who was concerned about acquiring the right talent for the show this is a garden article i'm taking this from fenton invited him to a disastrous lunch in the west end of london the waitress spilled food on the buyer's lap the chef got the order wrong and to top it all up the cloakroom lost his coat at the end of the meal he was quite frustrated by her and said look we need to talk about the talents and fenton recalls i actually think that you've met them all the blundering staff members were the cast and that he'd filmed the whole thing in a hidden camera in his tie that he had been wearing and he said the producer actually went ballistic he said he thought he said some things over lunch he didn't mean to say were private and he demanded i hand over the tape was the show commissioned no, it was no. not. So, uh, <laughs> so it doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't always pay off. It's all right to dance the tango in front of people. It's not all right to film them whilst they're having lunch. <laughs> Coming next, monkey tennis. No, not monkey tennis. Coming next. <laughs> what? I was looking forward to that. <laughs> Reading a politically incorrect book with the banjo player in Mumford and Sons. I mean, how are we here? I'm really sorry, but how are we here? <laughs> That's right. After Brittany Howard. Yeah. 
previously best known as singer and guitarist with the splendid Alabama Shakes. This is a track from her first solo album. Uh, The album is called Jamie. It reached number 13 on Billboard, number 36 in the UK. Brittany Howard and Stay High. I absolutely love that song. I've always been a fan of the Alabama Shakes, uh, who Brittany Howard sings for. And I, I've listened to I'd so I, I love this song anyway. And what really deepened my love for it is there's an excellent podcast called Song Exploder. Okay. Which is available on all major platforms. And again, this is a simple yet brilliant conceit. Uh, whoever pitched this, basically all it is, is it's about 20 minutes long. They vary in length, but it's around the 18 to 20 minute mark. And it is just consists of them unpacking a song. So they will take a song, could be an old song. It's usually slightly more modern songs, mm. but you know, they did, um, they did a song by Robin. They've done some Fleet Foxes songs and they just get, you know, usually the writer, they did a St. Vincent song. I think they'll get the writer in and they just talk about the process by which they wrote it, you know, how they built it up. They'll sometimes play stems from the studio of like the, you know, the drums and stuff like that. And it's really interesting. And they did one on this, song with Brittany Howard and she talked about how they got the how they made the kind of interesting drum beat and she talked about the thing that inspired it and it was just really really interesting and it made me hear the song with new ears and with even more depth than I had already because I really really liked it anyway but I would if you're interested in things like that I get that you know fiddling under the bonnet of great art is not for everyone Mm. there are some people that don't like doing that sort of thing and I get it but it's really interesting if you like that song particularly I would recommend you listen to that episode because it's really good and what's that podcast called again song exploder so i think it's available on most major platforms Mm. and it's great i really it's a really really nice podcast um i'm all in favor of being socially aware if Mm. it's defined as being or becoming more tuned into situations or issues that mean a greater understanding of i guess the impact of uh, for example Mm. racism or social injustice but i formed the opinion that we're on this sort of conveyor belt or an escalator mm. that we can't stop and it's finally running away with us. This week, uh, the banjo player Winston Marshall announced he was stepping away from his band Mumford & Sons because of what? Some terrible criminal charge filed against him, some awful deed that society would condemn. No, he had liked a book and mentioned this in a tweet on Twitter. It was apparently a book with a right-leaning view by a bloke called Andy Ngo, and it was it's titled Unmasked Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. And Winston Marshall tweeted to the author, finally had the time to read your important book, You're a Brave Man. End of quote. That's it. That's the end of his tweet. That's all he said. Um, And now the tweet is deleted and the world around him crashed down. And uh, now there's a new tweet from this um, uh, Winston Marshall. Mm. And I'll I'll, I'll quote it. Over the past few days, I've come to better understand the pain caused by the book I endorsed. I've offended not only a lot of people I don't know, but also those closest to me, including my bandmates. And for that, I'm truly sorry. End of quote. Now, Jules, this is like... The words forced out of someone who has gone through re-education in China or the Soviet Union, and it's utterly monstrous. We are allowed to have or share alternative or opposing views without our entire world caving in. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, we it, it does might not surprise anybody to know that we might come from slightly different places on this. I mean, interestingly, I read his second statement and I thought that seemed quite sincere. So it's interesting that that we both take slightly different vibes off that. Um, but you know, I can I can see the point that you're making. Um, it's it's interesting. I suppose whether whether what your view on this might I think slightly hinge on how you interpret that second statement because I I interpreted it as someone that had perhaps spoken in haste at the beginning and was was reconsidering. I thought it was quite a well-worded statement. So perhaps we may have differing views on this just because I interpret that differently mm. to you. I don't know. And I think I think sometimes there is a there is a danger that that people, particularly public figures, that will go on to discuss just to what extent the banjo player for Mumford and Sons is a public figure. I think a lot of this stems from people just not having enough to do, if I'm frank, mm-hmm. and people being sort of sit at home listening at looking at per- social media and people trying to channel their anxiety in various ways that are not always very productive such as twitch fork mobs so having said that they were a thing before coronavirus but having said that they've perhaps become even more heightened um having said this i do I do have a I do have a bit of sympathy for people being twitchy around around well not necessarily having view that they disagree although I agree with you that it's very important that we're able to disagree I I absolutely ironically I agree with you on that but um <laughs> but I um the thing that that I found um a little bit I mean I suppose basically what the what the book I mean I haven't read the book I have to be honest and say that and I haven't read much into it but there has been quite a lot of uh, criticism of it um he's a conservative journalist and there've been criticism from the sort of the sort of outlets that you would expect I suppose so Jacobin magazine which is very much of the left described him as the most dangerous grifter in America I thought that was the bloke that was in the white house a pas not um for they they what they regard as, as previous a, incumbent of the white house yes yeah, sorry we we love old we love old joe he's great so the one before that mr t rump yeah so um so but they they regarded uh, the book as attempting to incite harassment against left-wing protesters in part through the spread of false claims and selectively edited videos and the la times which i think is a perhaps a little bit more mainstream publication that's not to criticize jacobin that's just being you know aware of where described unmasked as supremely dishonest now i think there is a there is a tendency for rock stars public figures or perhaps otherwise to make big there's always been i think a think think a bit of a tendency for rock stars to make big pronouncements about things that they might not necessarily have thought through very deeply so i suppose i'm looking at at it through that kind of lens and also at the fact that given that we and I, I don't have any problem in saying this. We literally had a fascist coup in the White House in January. America had a lucky escape as far as democracy was concerned, I think, uh, that, you know, the then sitting president would not accept that he, well, he'd lost an election by, you know, sort of fairly, you know, no, completely legitimate means. Sorry to qualify that. Completely legitimate means and, and incited protesters. I can see why people... Uh, you know, obviously, I have my own political views. I understand that, but I I can see why. You know, the, the Guardian describes this chap as a far right agitator. Now, now it depends whether he's or not... allowed to be. That's my point. He's allowed to be. We don't. But we can disagree with him, and we can say, "Well, it's a load of all." The thing nonsense. is, though, is that is that when the far right take a hold, millions and millions of people get rounded up and killed. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm. 
I don't agree with with extremes of views, and I would ex- I would express that on both ends of the scale. But I uh, I'm not willing to tolerate the far right. I'm sorry, I'm not, because it always ends in violence. And and but then having said that, does necessarily and to to to, to lean into your point. Mm. Sorry, I hate that phrase, but I couldn't think of a better okay. one. Um, I thank you. I um I, I you know it is is saying to someone that they liked their book necessarily a full throated invo- endorsement of the far right. Perhaps it isn't, and I mm-hmm. suspect that you know the kind of you know the the wild sort of you know the wild pouncing on this bloke for expressing a view. Yes, I get that that is not great and he's entitled to have those views and actually interestingly his um there's been so the band that he's in Mumford and Sons had previously attracted criticism for being photographed with the right wing professor Jordan Peterson with whom I have extremely difficult uh, opinions regarding his I think terrible views about women which I find really offensive and damaging um, but Mumford uh, has, uh, Marcus Mumford the sort of the, the, the main mover has said he was upset that people might take the photograph as an endorsement of po- Peterson's politics many of which he disagreed with he said he would fiercely defend my bandmates rights to listen to the guy I am I the problem is is that whenever the far right are allowed to operate the consequences are always devastating and deadly for many minorities so that is I am I am an anti-far-right person and I always will be in the same way as that communism costs many millions of lives so I'm so I'm willing to be sort of BBC balanced on that but um this is not the BBC but um but I I, I understand your point of view that, mm. you know, people are inclined to hold views. It's just that I, I'm i distinctly uncomfortable with extremes of views that in the past have caused, a, you know, a great deal of threats to democracy. So, And it's always a strange, you know, it's when I was studying human rights law, Article 8 versus Article 10, you know, freedom of expression, uh, you know, expressed against sort of right to privacy and, and, and people's right to hold their own views and their religious views and, and to what, and it's always, you know, it's an age old problem, isn't it? To what extent should you be mindful in expressing views? To what extent should you not have to be mindful in expressing views? It's it's difficult, this one. And I, I totally understand where you're coming from, but I, you know, I can understand why, given the events within the last few months, people are nervous around associations with the far right. I don't think it ever ends well. Yeah, I mean, I think I... We've come so far with this enlightenment that Mm. we we now consider views only as extremes. And I don't mean you and I, I just mean... No, 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 I I see the point. If you veer to the left at all, then you're a rabid communist. Yes. If yes. you have right-leaning or establishment views, I think it would be better to say establishment views, you're a Nazi. But I, what I want to just look at, if you if you forgive me, is the aspect of... I'll forgive of, you anything, Terence. Go on. Is, <laughs> uh, this guy, this previously unknown to me, Winston Marshall, let's just... Yes, I did not know him either. <laughs> no, let's just see what he actually said again. Finally have the time to read your important book, You're a Brave Man. That that mm-hmm. could mean, mean almost anything. Yes, the thing is, yes, I agree make a mistake these days or press on and i'm saying this in inverted commas press on like on the wrong tweet Mm. or facebook post and it's a life sentence this is my um this is the bit i want to um finish off with sorry 
doesn't seem to be the hardest word anymore as it's not considered to be enough you must pay um possibly but probably lose your job and everything that entails mortgage home family all in jeopardy because of one tweet or one post it's beyond absurd i just want to give you a couple of examples from this mm. very week that we're recording oh, yes, this week a jokey tweet a silly tweet uh, by yeah. a director of the supermarket chain Iceland here in the UK. Oh, he yes. Was with the company for over 40 years. He's a director. Right. He was sacked for making a couple of innocuous, but, you know, admittedly silly jokes about Wales, saying, oh, I don't want to go to Wales. There's Welsh people there. <laughs> he was sorry. sacked. I'm sorry to laugh. He was sacked. And on Wednesday... Ian Murray, the executive director of the Society of Editors, resigned because he issued a statement defending the UK press from um, the Duke and Duchess of Santa Barbara, um, Harry and (laughs) Meghan's media racism accusations. That was his job to defend the press. He's the executive director of the Society of Editors. I mean, I don't think this was quite as cut and dried as you're painting that. He was forced to resign. But he's allowed to have his view. We may not agree, and we don't need, though, to hunt him down and force him out of his job. Same with the Iceland man. It's a massive overreaction. We're all allowed to agree to disagree. I mean, it is Ian Murray's job to represent, you know, it's 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 a hide into nothing that job anyway, the, the Society of Editors' job, I think. But I, I, there, there was a feeling that it was underplaying racism that was experienced by people oh. within the press. I agree with you that that people shouldn't le- lose their sort of over one I just tweet. want to focus on on this. So, and sorry to interrupt. Should yes. they and the Iceland man should they have lost their job, possibly with implications for mortgages, their family, their children? And find it probably very difficult to work again, certainly in the short term, because they've been sacked. Sorry well, to my, my, that's my, my question. And well, my question to you is, do you think it's just about that or is there other aspects to this that we don't know about? That's an easy headline, sacked over a tweet. Uh, has well, there been, been reported, has there been uh, exactly that's what's been reported is that actually what is happening that is my question because we've had i think we've had conversations not on this specific topic but sort of around and and, and everything is connected so we often end up talking about the same things just simply because that is life but we i think we had a conversation fairly recently and if you looked actually into whether or not people were actually cancelled i agree that the culture of cancellation has become absurd i'm totally with you on that but is that what is i mean you know that that rich joke at the moment i've been silenced read all about it in my column in the telegraph you know i do wonder sometimes <laughs> if that is actually what is happening and that's not for me to say that i don't trust the press and i walk around in a tin four hat all the time but i do I do wonder. Life is never quite as simple as we think it is. And I wonder if that is the headline that's been reported because it's easy to report. It sells papers that someone's been sacked because of a tweet. Was it, you know, was it that or was it the the last in a long line of difficulties? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that is worth thinking about or perhaps at least having having in the mind. But, but the contrast, and I agree with you, is what mm. seems to be so ridiculous is that... Uh, that there are you know there have been you know I, I hate to say these words and my apologies if this I don't need to use the word trigger but I think it's fair to say this there how was Jimmy Savile allowed to happen for 45 years and nothing ever happened and you know when to, when it comes to people being cancelled and people not being cancelled Louis CK who the American comedian who behaved a 
appallingly mm. in front of women within a year was doing stand-up in clubs again and and yet Winona Ryder who shoplifted from a posh shop when she was quite clearly mentally ill could not get work for about 15 years before she she is now in things again so I think what makes me cross is you know, uh, Winston Marshall's dad is extremely rich. I'm not saying that that should matter, but I no. somehow feel that he might be okay. And actually, and this is not a snide at you, Terence, but mm. men usually are in these things. And I think we've talked about this before. Men usually manage to make a comeback. Women usually don't. So, so and that's not to say I don't have sympathy. Um, and actually, the, the book So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson is mm -hmm. worth reading on this, actually. It's got some age to it now, yet it seems to become more more relevant rather than less. I agree that actually it's frustrating because all the time that we're frothing at the mouth at something that someone may or may not have said on Twitter, what is going on in the background? Other people are getting away with stuff, which is just, you know, hair-tearingly bad. And this is sort of a distraction, really. So so I'm, I'm with you on that aspect of it, for sure. Yeah, I think we, we can um, agree, or agree on that for certain, um, that... It, it, the, the, you know, if you look at Savile and uh, mm. some of uh, Max Clifford and so on, people hiding oh, yes. in plain the sight. The tree massive, yeah. The, the U tree massive, exactly. Um, you know, th those are the people that uh, that should have been uh, being chased. And, yet, and may, you know, maybe this is a maybe this sorry to interrupt you, but maybe mm. this is an, an overreaction to what has happened. Maybe people now are so sensitive. Uh, particularly in some, you know, perhaps in the press, people are so sensitive they don't want to be the ones that let this go by. I don't know how how true that is. It's just a sort of a, a, a piece of, well, I say a piece of wild speculation on my part. Perhaps that will get me cancelled. I don't know, but um, <laughs> but you know what I mean. I wonder if there is there is you know this idea that you know no one everyone wants to be a whistleblower now because no one wants to be seen as someone that just sort of stood back and let this happen. But that's not always. A, the case, and be very productive. Absolutely. Well, look, thanks very much for listening mm. this week. It's been lovely to have you there. Yes, I very much agree. It's nice to be here with Terence, but it's also nice to be here with you. Are we able to hear you sailing smoothly with music to accompany the journey this weekend? Well, do you know what, Terence? It's funny you should ask that. Um, it's almost like we... <laughs> it's like a leading thinking. question, isn't it? Really? I was going to say, never ask a question you don't know the answer to. The first rule of advocacy. Um, yeah, I am. I will be smooth sailing on Sunday evening. It is Mother's Day, but my mother will be dispatched by that point. So I will be smooth sailing from night 7 to 9pm on my little Mixer channel, which is mixlr.com. And then you can just search my name on Mixer, which is Juliet Harris. And, uh, and yeah, and, and it's two hours of you know, perhaps not the world's edgiest music, but music which is calming and uplifting and is just a nice way to uh, to, to say goodbye to the weekend and to just sort of chill out a bit on a Sunday night. And uh, and, and what can I say? Some people seem to enjoy it. So that is that is a good thing. It's amazing how many Motown songs transfer joyously to reggae. Mm. And here's one now. Oh, yes, that was my cue, wasn't it? That so, was your cue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it's funny you should say that, Terence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you have one by any chance? Do you know what? Weirdly, I do. Um, <laughs> the most professional podcast on the airways <laughs> sails once again to a big finish. Uh, no, I, I adore this tune. And, uh, regular listeners will know that I've been picking a few reggae covers recently. Um, there are a lot of bad reggae covers out there, so it takes a little bit of sifting, but there are some also some excellent 
decadent ones and I particularly enjoyed this and not least because I love the original by Stevie Wonder and I also loved Michael McDonald's fairly recent cover of this within the last few years so I thought that's it I've found the song I love and the cover of it and there's no room for any other versions but I absolutely adore this I think it's such a good take on a song and it shows how good this you know all a good cover shows how good the song is but I think it is a very um to use reggae parlance nasty version of this tune so uh, this is Pat Roden and Living for the City a boy is born a boy is in hard time Mississippi surrounded by surrounded by the thing so pretty so pretty his spirits give him love and affection to keep him strong moving in Listening to a Parish Council production.